Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. If you have your own Bible, you can grab that now and or grab it on your phone or your device or whatever. And let's turn to the book of James this morning. The book of James. Last week, uh, well, a couple weeks ago, Aaron closed out our summer psalm series. And today we are going to be looking at James. And if you just hold your horses, I'm going to grab my sermon notes. Let's pass the piece some more. (laughs) Just give me a second. Yeah, last week uh, I introduced the book of James, but today we are going to really begin our journey in uh, the New Testament book of James, starting at verse 1 of chapter 1. So I hope we try to have a balanced diet of Scripture if you're new with us. Sometimes we uh, spend a season on a topic or on a theme, but most of the time we want to spend our Sundays as we gather, walking through books of the Bible. And we think this is important for a number of reasons. I just want to mention three off the front end here. First of all, biblical diversity. Walking through an entire book means that we will experience the diversity of God's Word. Um, Otherwise, you would experience only the themes and only the, the, the books and the ideas and the truths that your preacher likes or that hope is naturally drawn to. So this keeps us accountable to the diversity of God's word. Also, biblical literacy. So if we're called to submit to the authority of God's word, then we better make sure we're doing a responsible job interpreting it and walking through a book of the Bible sort of as it was delivered originally helps us do that. We have to pay attention to things like context. We have to honor things like flow of thought, and that is good for us. And honestly, it takes uh, the things that we learn and catch in our Sunday gatherings, we can then take home with us to our own study and application of God's Word. And then thirdly, biblical story. So walking through an entire book, as we're about to do with James, keeps our place in the story of God. The Bible is the true story of the world, creation, fall, Redemption, full restoration. And if we only engage in sort of topics or certain verses in the Bible here and there, it is tempting then to reduce the Bible to a how to manual. But walking through an entire book of the Bible grounds us in God's bigger story. And we think that's important. So this morning, we will start our journey through James. And the right Right away, as we do this, we need to talk about structure. The structure of James. There's debate about this, but I'm convinced that James, the book that's in your lap right now, is a sermon. James was a local pastor in Jerusalem whose congregation, as we see in the very first verse, was dispersed because of persecution. And so James had to find a way to pastor them. James had to find a way to preach to them. And so he sent them a sermon letter. One way to look at James is an ancient sermon podcast. It is a sermon. And again, there's debate about this, but it seems to me that James' sermon has 
three broad points, which is super validating to me because I love a three-point sermon. Uh, The irony is that today's sermon has five points, but... But I do agree with those who see three broad themes in James. And what are those? Well, we get them billboarded to us right away in the first part of chapter one. And so verses two through four introduces to us the theme of of hardship and trial. And then verses five through eight, if you take a look, introduces us to the theme of wisdom and navigating this world with wisdom. And then verses 9 through 11, if you look down, introduces the theme of material wealth. And not just material wealth on a surface level, but the social dynamics surrounding that. And then James restates these three broad themes again in chapter 1 with verses 12 through 18. 19 through 26 and then verse 27. And then we see these themes unpacked. In the rest of the sermon. So riches in chapter 2. Wisdom in chapters 3 and half of 4. Trials in chapter 4 starting in verse 13. So today what we're going to be doing. Is we're going to be looking at James chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And I'm having all kinds of problems with my sermon notes. They always said don't use an iPad for sermon notes because on any minute it's going to start updating on you. (laughs) Which is exactly what happened. Alright, so pass the piece and I'm going to grab a computer. While we're waiting, I was just informed that that 915 number for prayer time on Sunday mornings is actually not correct. And it's going to be at 945 or around then. So we thought we'd just reissue that announcement while we have a little time. you guys don't know is that that was a planned sermon (laughs) illustration for what we are about to read. (laughs) And we'll let that, if you're wondering, we'll let that just um, do its thing. (laughs) So today we'll spend our time in verses 1 through 4, and here we encounter a greeting which is not a throwaway scripture, by the way. You know, chefs talk about eating nose to tail. We have to do that with scripture as well. Uh, And in verses 2 through 4, as I said, we will encounter his teaching on trial. So let me just read the text, and I invite you to follow along as I read. We'll pray, and we'll ask God to speak to us this morning. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. 
Now, real quick, I want to stop actually reading. And I want you to notice something important. James is the brother of Jesus. The incarnation teaches us that James was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But we know from the Gospels that later Mary had a rather large family and likely raised this family herself. And James was not just part of that family. Uh, James was part of that family. And so I just wonder how many of you are siblings out there? How many of you are a brother or a sister? And so I want you to consider how much life you have lived with your brother or your sister. And then consider how James could, if he had wanted to, leverage that relationship. Market that relationship. Prop himself up in the eyes of his congregants and the watching world and the future world. Instead, what does James do? He says, I am James' servant. Slave. Doulos. Of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you all. That's what James is doing. James is saying, my bloodline does not save me. It does not make me special. It is my faith, my empty hands of faith that saves me. I am saved by Jesus just like you are. Yeah, we shared a house. But that doesn't put me in a better place. So just in a few words here, we already have a powerful picture I think of gospel humility and godly leadership. So let's continue in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now let me just say one more thing, and then I'll actually read the text. Um, In the Greek, this word here, translated brothers in some translations, includes women and men when it's used to describe a gathering. And so to avoid the unfortunate connotation really that James is only addressing men Uh, I'm going to follow the footnote in my Bible and maybe your translation from here on out so count all joy my brothers and sisters when you meet trials of various kinds verse 3 for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing let's pray Lord Would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we need your empowering presence this very moment. Would the word that you inspired soften our hearts, open our hearts, unstop our ears, open our eyes so that we would see you, Jesus. We need this to be a supernatural time. If we're not hungry, make us hungry. If we're not thirsty, make us thirsty by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, so in 2009, there was a book that came out that sent shockwaves through the running shoe community. So it's called Born to Run. Maybe you've heard of it. It became a national bestseller. And in the very first chapter of this book, the author, Christopher McDougall, starts complaining about his running injuries. And then long story short, by the end, he starts running without shoes. More specifically, he starts running with those vibrant five fingers. You guys know what those are? You've seen those? And remember his injury problems in chapter one? Well, by the end of the book, they're gone. And so you can imagine what the executives of Vibram were thinking with this national bestseller. Those five-finger shoes started popping up everywhere on our friends and on our family, unfortunately, because they smell bad. But apparently people started to get hurt because they assumed, I think, that running with them would magically solve some of their injury issues. But in fact, a lot of them got more injured. And some argued that Vibram themselves did not tell the whole story. That it takes a ton of time to build up foot strength to run without shoes. That that if you are able to run a marathon distance in running shoes, you have to really start running down your block and back. 
in these Vibram shoes. And people were upset, and so they sued Vibram. And they had, the company had to pay nearly $4 million in a settlement. Why? False advertising. In the business world, false advertising is when a company misleads the consumer. When they get us to buy something without telling us the full story. And that's the business world. I think this happens in the Christian world as well, especially the American church. We are guilty of false advertising. We're so eager that our, I think that our family and that our friends follow Jesus with us, which is great, but we are tempted to sand down the rough edges of our faith. In particular, we don't really spell out that following Jesus includes troubles. To use Bonhoeffer's famous phrase, we have lowered the cost of discipleship. In some cases, removed it altogether. And this is false advertising, friends. And we're really tempted to do it in our context, in our American story. I learned this week that a famous German theologian in the 20th century was once asked, what is sort of the biggest problem facing, in your opinion, from the outside, uh, what's the biggest problem facing the American church? And his answer was a defective view of suffering. And I think he's right. We have a defective view of suffering. And so when hardships come, we usually do one of two things. We silence them or we soften them. We plug our ears and hum. I don't want to, I don't want to, I just don't want to. And we silence it all together. Or we don't ignore it, but we soften it. And we say, at least, it's, I call this at leastism. At least this, at least this, at least this. But right away, James reminds us in his sermon of another option that is better than silence and softening. On the one hand, he doesn't silence the hardship that his congregation, his dispersed, exiled con- congregation is facing. He doesn't silence it. He doesn't ignore it. He brings it up right away. But he doesn't soften it either. If you were to look ahead in the sermon, you will see that James specifically, with no minced words, names the hardships that they were facing. One author summarized the hardships we encounter in James this way. Poverty, injustice, grief, and sickness. And I was trying to think of a way to remember this for our study through James. And voila, it's an acronym, PIGS. Okay, PIGS. What does James give us? James does not silence the pigs. He doesn't soften the pigs. He names it in, in scathing detail, actually, as we will encounter in the coming months. So what does James give us? He offers what Ben Witherington calls subversive wisdom. He doesn't silence hardship. He doesn't soften hardship. He subverts hardship with the good news of Jesus. That's what he does. The subversive wisdom that he speaks of in verse 2 and 3 and 4 is ours in Christ Jesus. And this wisdom, I think, can be summarized by five key words in this section of his sermon. And those five words are going to be win, meet, affect, that, and count. So let's just go through each of these five words this morning. I told you it's a five-point sermon. So the word win, when you see this down here in verse 2, win means that we are not surprised by hardship. Do you notice the word when in verse 2? James says, count it all joy when you meet trials. He does not say, if you're unfortunately one of those who will encounter trials. But when. This means we should never be surprised by their reality. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter 4, you can listen. Verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised. 
at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here. Friends, when life gets really difficult, Peter says, do not jump to the conclusion that God is not on the job. But that's what we do, isn't it? We jump to that conclusion. We don't have room, really, in our worldview for Christian hardship. Maybe hardship. But hardship that is explicitly tied to our discipleship with Jesus, we tend to think hardship is separate from that, don't we? That God is not involved in that at all when it comes. Like how I pack my boys' lunch in the morning with Ziploc, separate Ziploc bags for everything. We put our suffering in a separate Ziploc bag, and we put our faith in another Ziploc bag, and that's how we often live. But keep in mind that James' congregation was experiencing hardship explicitly because they were following Jesus. The hardships that James addresses specifically later in his sermon are largely persecution-based hardships. In a recent article called What Christian Aid Workers Want You to Know About Afghanistan, one of those Christian aid workers, Mansour Borji, says, quote, Just yesterday I was informed of how some Afghan Christians are now burning literature and other Christian materials in their homes, which could expose them to Taliban, who are now searching house to house to identify their targets. James, you have to understand, is trying to pastor to an ancient church community who is up against this sort of thing. Though as one pastor points out, James keeps this in this verse very unspecific so that all believers across all circumstances can apply this text. But the point remains, it is scandalous to say, don't be surprised when this kind of thing happens and is tied to your faith. After all, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Well, he says in John, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. So if the American church, I want to say, is guilty of false advertising, Jesus is not. And apparently his, his apostles aren't either. James, and we just heard from Peter, Paul strikes this theme often as well. Hardship is when, not if. Now, if you think this is harsh, which on first blush might be true, I want you to know that I think it's so kind. And here's why. Imagine you're going on a ski trip. And you never skied before. But you're invited. And the person who invited you assured you that you would only go down those green circle slopes. But then you show up. And there's like two black diamonds. And you find out that, yeah, the person who invited you knew that. They knew there were some black diamonds. That would be terrible. <laughs> Wouldn't it? You would resent that. But how much more kind would it be for her to say... You will be stretched with some black diamonds. But guess what? I will be with you the whole entire way. And at the bottom of these black diamonds, there is a lounge with a fire and some amazing food and drink. That is kindness. And that's the kindness of James here. The kindness of Jesus as well. He doesn't trick you into following him. He doesn't sandbag you, to use a climbing phrase. He tells you exactly what is at stake. Following me, he says, is a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. And when you do follow me, expect hardship in this short lifetime. But I will be with you. I will never forsake you. And an eternity of joy with me awaits you. But hardship for now, yes, will come. If they persecuted me, they will persecute my people. And so the word when, right away, is subversive. It's subversive wisdom on hardship. When we encounter hardship, we will not be surprised. The word when, I think, takes some of the teeth out of our hardship. We can categorize it under just as Jesus said. Just as James said, 
This is not strange. It's hard, but it's not strange. Until Jesus returns, we can say to ourselves, I live in this already, not yet, tension. Already, I have everything I need by the Holy Spirit and by Jesus' finished work on on the cross and His resurrection. But the full experience of sinlessness, the full experience of painlessness, of new creation, resurrection life, not yet. And so in a sense, you too, me too, we are included in what James calls the dispersion in verse 1. We are not home. We are not home. Do you believe that right now? We are not home. Yes, God created, as I say often, God created the world and called it good. But he will recreate it, not by scrapping what we're sitting in right now, but by renewing what we're sitting in right now. And until that moment, we are not home. So we are not surprised. And then pray for those and help in whatever way we can. Those like our Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Who are meeting trials beyond our imagination, but perhaps in the imagination of James and the original congregations. That's the word when. Now let's talk about the word meet. Meet. The word meet means that we are... uh, Well, if the word win means we're not surprised by hardship, I think the word meet means that we do not seek out hardship as a community of Jesus. And I think these two words carry an important balance in the Christian life. Because throughout history, and even up to the present day, Christians have developed what what has been called a sort of martyr complex. Once we grasp that Jesus promised hardship, we're tempted to flip the script and start to seek it out. Perhaps as a way to secure affirmation or assurance of salvation with God. We're on God's team. How do I know? Suffering persecution. How do I get persecution? I better seek it out. And this can happen. But James gives us a word which should prevent this. It is the word meet in verse 2. When you meet trials of various kinds. Other translations say fall into Trials, And that is exactly right. The idea here is that Christians, Christ followers, will fall into hardship. They don't seek it out. They meet it. And so when you meet trials, it feels like you're being sideswiped or T-boned. In fact, when Josie and I were first married 16 years ago, she was driving up northwest here in Columbus. And then all of a sudden there was a car at her passenger side door. A guy just ignored the stop sign and rammed right into her. And gladly she was okay, and gladly I was not with her in that passenger seat. But that is how hardships are described here by James. Something you meet, not something you seek. So I hope we will endure hardship when, not if, it comes. But we will not seek it. It's been said that As a church community, you can either see the city you're in as a battlefield or a mission field. And I hope we are choosing to see this city that we live in as a mission field. We are missionaries. And if we fight, it's it's, it's how Paul describes the fight. As a spiritual battle of prayer and self-sacrifice. In fact, some scholars point out that James is telling his church to consider hardship joy... Because their temptation, in light of what they were experiencing as new Christ followers, was to consider persecution as the first punch in a fight. Later in the sermon, James confronts the impulse to retaliate with violent words and even violent action. Why? Because there is, in the original context, this temptation to view persecution as the first punch in a fight. But James, like Jesus, tells them to bear a cross for the joy that is set before them. 
This is important because it means that as a church, our job is to follow the Lord wherever He leads us and not to worry about tomorrow, not worry about the consequences. They will surely come. Jesus says they will, but we will meet them. We will not seek them. And when we do, we will have a cross-shaped posture. Meet. That's the second word. So when and meet are very subversive. Effect. That's the third word. Effect. Effect. Effect means we will not shortcut hardship. So if meet means we will not seek out hardship. And if win means that we will not be surprised by hardship. Then I believe the word effect means we must not shortcut hardship. James says, count all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full, here's the word, effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So notice that effect, this word here, effect, is downstream from verse 2, which includes and starts with trials. For James, hardships are trials, and they eventually have an effect. They're not sort of in themselves positive, but they have a positive effect, a full effect, to use James' word. And this full effect is, as we see in this passage, what James calls perfection or maturity or lack of lack. Being shaped fully into the image of Jesus, which is a good and beautiful thing. And so the word effect means that we must not shortcut the severe mercy that is hardship. This is subversive wisdom. We believe that hardships have, have an effect on our faith and on our growth as a Christ follower. And to receive this effect, we must not shortcut the hardships we're in. And I think I see this in three ways in this section. And the first is this. We must allow our trials to smelt. This may be a new word for some of you. Our faith. Smelt. Not like smell. But smelt. Smelting is when you purify something like gold with extreme heat. So if you look again at verse 2, James says that our hardships test our faith. Verse 3. Now this word test is not like a driver's test. It's not like a school test. Pass, fail. That's not what's going on here. This word here is a smelting word. Like how fire again tests metal to purify its dross. And so hardship is a way that God smelts your faith. The dross drips away, exposing more and more of what? The gold that is what? Already there. This isn't pass-fail. The faith is already there. Too many of us, I think, treat God like a domineering like music teacher who stands over your shoulder as you play. Maybe you've seen the movie Whiplash. Have you seen the movie Whiplash? No, that is not God. God subverts hardship in order to strengthen the faith that is already there. So we treat our trials and we allow them to smelt our faith. Which brings us to another word, strengthen our faith. Allowing trials to strengthen our faith. This is the other way that we can not shortcut our trials. It says in verse 3 that the smelting of our faith produces something. Do you see it? Steadfastness. The word literally means to stand under. To stand under. And so I like to think about a barbell or a kettlebell. When you put something heavy over your head and hold it there, It makes you stronger. There's an ancient story of a man who carried a young baby calf across his farm each day. And as the calf got bigger, this uh, this man naturally got stronger. 
so that eventually this man could carry a full-sized heifer. Now, I don't think that can happen, but it's a great story because it shows you, in a way, how God subverts our hardships. He uses them to make us steadfast, able to stand under heavy things. And then we allow trials to catalyze our faith. We don't shortcut hardships because they catalyze our faith. And that's what perfect and complete really gets after in verse 4. So on the one hand, James is talking about a perfection and a completeness and a lack of lack that can only come when Jesus returns, when our faith will be perfect. Because after all, James addresses the faith community as having quite a bit of lack in this letter itself, in this sermon. So he's talking about this moment when Jesus returns and... We will experience sinlessness because of the resurrection. But on the other hand, James believes that our faith can move toward that place and toward that moment in substantial ways in this lifetime. I said last week that James believes in change. And that's a good word. Hardships for James has a way of catalyzing our faith toward that moment. I love to talk about this concept spelled out by a scholar. You've probably heard me talk about this before. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about anti-fragile. And so he suggests that there's three kinds of objects in the world. There's fragile objects that break under pressure like a wine glass. There's sturdy objects that stay the same under pressure like a, like a sippy cup. But there's a third category, something he calls anti-fragile. These are objects that are the opposite of fragility. They don't break under pressure. They actually thrive under pressure. They thrive under weight and under chaos. There's so many examples of this in the natural world. uh, Muscles, immune systems, forest fires. I think many of us see hardship as a means to sippy cup faith. Sturdy faith. Like, like if I endure this, this, this trial with Jesus, it is solidifying or it's stirred, making my faith sturdy. Like it's a static thing. But the image that James gives us is more along the lines of antifragile. Like these hardships are actually growing them. We may not see it. We may not believe God when he says he's growing us. We may think our faith is getting destroyed actually. But the truth is, and the truth some of us need to cling to this morning is that God is committed to growing your faith. So call to mind the struggles that are in front of you this morning, especially the ones because of your faith. James gives you permission to subvert that at this moment with the truth that it is actually working to strengthen your faith. A few years ago, at one of our worship nights, uh, John who's leading us in the music this morning, shared a story of an older, wiser, godly pastor. Apparently, young people would come up to him and say, I wish my faith was as strong as your faith. And the pastor replies, my faith is not stronger. I just have more experience with a faithful God. And I think that's exactly what James is after this morning. As we experience the faithfulness of God under fire. All we're doing is we're sort of just accumulating a track record of his faithfulness, not necessarily our faith. And that keeps us in the game. The past 18 months have been grueling for all of us in different ways. With the help of a godly counselor, I've discovered that God has been using this past year plus to demolish some of my false trusts. That I've relied on for like my whole life. And he's fortifying, therefore, my dependence on Jesus. Is that fun? No, it's not fun. But I can say it is a good thing. Effect. That's the word. Effect. There is a full effect. I want to ask you do you believe there's an effect? At the end of this. We're going to look at two more words briefly here. As we're running out of time. And the first word is that. 
That, T-H-A-T, yes, that. That means we will not be stumped by hardship. It's easy to miss here, but it is profound. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. That, that, you may be perfect and complete. We already talked about what this verse means, but I just want to pause here for a moment on the staggering truth embedded in that single word, that. It's the staggering truth that your hardships have a purpose. That's what that means. It's a purpose word. So that. Introducing a purpose clause. The normal person talk, your hardship is not pointless. And isn't that what we always think? Or we are tempted to think? I've, I've said before, this is just stupid. When something's going on, this is just a waste of time. Oh my gosh. Or even darker thoughts like, maybe this is all life is. It's just a series of hardships with a few points of relief. What did Macbeth say? Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And some of us, we resonate with that and we need to hear this morning a simple phrase, so that. You don't need to know all the answers behind your hardships this morning. You don't need a very specific takeaway this morning. Maybe all you need to know is that it's not pointless. And then finally, the word count. Count means we will not be short-sighted in hardship. Maybe this is a word you've all been sort of waiting for this morning. How James starts his sermon, and how could he even start his sermon with this phrase, count it all joy when you encounter these things. First of all, what is it? When James says, count it all joy, what is it? Well, it, I think we could probably understand at this point, it is hardship. And so James says we must count hardships as joy. And so what does that mean? Well, let's define what it doesn't mean before we define maybe what it means. Number one, it doesn't mean that we have to enjoy hardship. Count it joy does not mean we have to enjoy hardship. Count it is a mindset word. Alec Moyer, the Bible scholar, would say it's a decision we make about how to value something. So Paul can look at his life achievements, the Apostle Paul, and he can say, I count it or I consider it all dumb. Compared to knowing Jesus. That's a valuation of something. That's a consideration of something. In light of Jesus, I count it. I consider it. And that's what James is asking us to do with hardship. We value hardship in a different way now because of King Jesus. James expert Miriam Camel, she says, quote, James is not commanding how one should feel, but rather how one should think about one's circumstances. And I don't like this hard line between thinking and feeling. You know this. But it is helpful that this word consider means you don't have to enjoy the hardship to consider it joy. And number two, it doesn't mean that we only feel joy in hardship. Count it all joy. That word all does not mean that all you're allowed to feel in hardship is joy. The word all actually describes the quality of joy. It's a full joy. It's an all-surpassing joy. But I think James knows that this isn't the only thing that the congregation is experiencing. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 1.6, admits that trials produce grief, even as it produces rejoicing. And so I think you can obey this verse and cry and wail at the same time. 
What it does mean is that we don't focus necessarily and entirely on the hardship. I love what New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says. He says, we don't look to the hardship, but because of Jesus, we can look through the hardship. Considerate joy is basically, in other words, another way to describe hope. Christian hope. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is the assurance of the future where God makes all things right. And so considerate joy is basically another way to say hope. We look through the hardship to the future. And when we see Jesus in that future, we are reminded that this hardship is part of that journey. And that God is over it. Doesn't answer all the questions. I know that. I, I'm painfully aware it doesn't answer all the questions. But it can give you this joy. It's been said that this section here is not the power of positive thinking, and I think that's absolutely right. James does remind me of the importance of our mindset. There's been a lot of research in the sort of secular academy about this. In fact, many of you probably have read this or encountered this book called Mindset. And in this book, the author, Carol Dweck, says that there tend to be two ways we approach life, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. So fixed mindsets see our abilities and sort of everything is fixed. And then growth mindsets uh, see that everything about us is is in, in flux and growing and it's dynamic. So those with a growth mindset tend to approach the world very differently than those with a fixed mindset. And this speaks to the power of mindsets, how we view problems, how we view life. I just want to say, if that's true apart from the Holy Spirit, how much more true is it of God's people who have the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit who is at work in each of us to do what? To shape us into who? The image of Jesus. We have the capacity to approach hardships, therefore, with a joy mindset. And that is subversion. That is undermining hardship. That looks like the cross. When I hop into my car to enter into a difficult circumstance, I'm usually not happy. I'm usually not whistling. But I do experience what I would call a settled okayness. (laughs) A settled okayness um, that comes... Usually from a single phrase from an old hymn that I I just sort of say to myself. It says, whatever he ordains is right. I say that to myself. And what settles on my heart at that moment is a settled okayness. And it's so shocking to me that it makes me glad. It makes me glad that in life I know that God is over my story. It makes me glad that I know that this circumstance does not have the final word. It makes me glad that I don't have to control the outcome of this circumstance. It makes me glad that this is not the end. That just makes me glad. And that is Christian joy in the midst of difficult, agonizing stuff. One scholar lists all the passages in the New Testament where joy and hardship coexist. And there's at least 15. Which is amazing. And it's all because of Jesus. We're able to consider hardships as joy. Because Jesus is our joy. Because hardships can give us more of Jesus. And so five words. When. It just means we're not surprised. Meet. It means we don't seek out hardships. Effect. That means we don't shortcut hardships. That means we will not be stumped by hardship. Remember, the word that, it just tells us it's not pointless. And again, some of us just need to hear that. Count means we don't have to look directly at it, but we can look through it. What word can you hang on to this morning? I just want to be modest. As we start off with James. Is there a single word in this passage. That you can just hang on to this week. Just one word. Is it when? Is it meet? Is it effect? Is it so that? Is it count? Or consider? Or is it another word? In this text. Lord, would you 
meet us as we trust you in this. It's hard to. Give us, by your spirit, empty hands of faith. That can indeed trust that whatever it is we're up against is not the final say. Help us to subvert by your power the things in front of us, the things we're meeting. And we do pray for the global underground as they too meet in profound ways trials. Would we in this comfortable space remember that and by your spirit pray and move for our body of Christ who suffer both in this space and outside. Be tender to us. Be kind to us, Jesus, right now. As we call to mind the hardest things in, in our in our story, we need your kindness desperately. We need your presence desperately. We need you, Holy Spirit, to give us hope in that. We need the body of Christ to help us look through them. Who can, as James would say later, listen well? We're doing all these things we ask. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.